what are we waiting on? Why is he get, he's still getting published in like kidney medicine for like? I don't know if you're familiar with doing clinical trials, but they just don't happen overnight. It's just so easy. Just do the clinical trial, Doctor Tobes. (laughs) That's what I'm saying. It's. I'm just saying. It's kind of an important problem. Welcome to Freely Filtered the twice-a-month podcast that summarizes and pontificates on recent NEFJC journal clubs. NEFJC is a Twitter nephrology journal club where nephrologists meet in social space to discuss the research and developments that are driving nephrology forward. This podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is not intended to give medical advice. If you have questions about your health, we suggest that you talk with your doctor. This podcast may discuss off-label and unapproved medications. Hello, my name is Joel Toff, Kidney Boy on Twitter. Tonight, we have three members of the filtry. Swap. Hey, I'm Swapnil Hiramat. I'm a nephrologist and I'm an epidemiologist at the University of Ottawa. I tweet at H. Swapnil. I don't have any conflicts with this particular trial. Nayan. Hi, everyone. I'm Nayan Aurora. I am a nephrologist at the University of Washington in Seattle, and I have no conflicts of interest. <laughs> Sophia. Hi, uh, I'm Sophia Ambruso. I'm at the University of Colorado in the Denver VA. I have no conflicts of interest, and I tweet at Sophia underscore kidney. And we have two special guests. First is Dr. Jay Coiner of the University of Chicago. Introduce yourself, Jay. Hi, everyone. I'm Jay Coiner. Like Joel said, I'm at the University of Chicago. I tweet at, at Jay Coiner, all one word, J-A-Y-K-O-Y-N-E-R. Got to spell it out. That's very in vogue these days on the Twitter. And I guess I do have potential conflicts of interest. I have received research funding from Fresenius and NextAge, and have done some consulting work for Baxter and some of the other dialysis companies. Excellent. And Jay, you also joined us for the last initiation of uh, dialysis and AKI study that we did just about a year ago, uh, Start AKI. And uh, you were a, a valued member of the team. So, you know, this is if you come back for a third visit, we're going to have we're going to have to do something special, you know, like a smoking jacket or something. Wow. There's a lot of perks to come in on Freely Filtered. It's like hosting Saturday Night Live five times. And the other special guest is uh, Dr. Sarah Fauble, a professor of medicine at the University of Colorado. Uh, Sarah and I, we go back a long way. We went to medical school together. And more than just we're in medical school, we were we collaborated on the, my first two medical education projects. We wrote two books. We wrote a microbiology book while we were in medical school and a fluid and electrolyte book while we were in residency. And I do feel a bit guilty because I feel like that uh, fluid and electrolyte book has become more and more associated with me, but that was absolutely a collaboration. And so many of the great ideas in that book came from Sarah. Sarah, why don't you introduce yourself? So that's a really kind introduction. I am Sarah Fobble, and I'm at the University of Colorado in Denver. I, I have to say, I just lurk at the Twitter handle at doc underscore Fobble. That's F like Frank, A-U, B like boy, E-L as in Larry. Uh, and Joel, what did, we had this conversation once. There's, who's the understudy for, for Burton Rose? I, I, I'm okay with 
being that that be that that would be that Ted Post. Other you are the Ted Post. <laughs> I, I, I I'm really good with that. I love that our book has gotten out there. I'm very very happy being the understudy. It's it, it's fun. The, the, we printed up 1,200 copies of the book, and we were super delighted when we sold the 1,200th copy, and that we had none left in our warehouse. But now that's available free on the website, we get about we get about 20 downloads a day. Tonight we are discussing Akiki Two, and the two in the name is quite meaningful in a way we don't often see in nephrology. This study is a true sequel to one of the contemporary classics of the nephrology literature. Akiki came out in 2016 and pitted early initiation of dialysis versus late initiation of dialysis in a classic article in the New England Journal of Medicine. And the important finding in Akiki 1, which was just Akiki at that time, was that the late initiation of dialysis had equivalent mortality outcomes to the early initiation of dialysis, kind of counter to the prevailing wisdom of the time in which early dialysis was presumed to be better than late dialysis. And not only did it have equivalent outcomes, people in the late dialysis arm of Akiki were started on dialysis about half as often. About half the people in the late arm never had to initiate dialysis because uh, presumably their renal function got better. I, I guess it could have been because they died, but the, the take-home message was it wasn't that they died, is that uh, they, didn't start an, they didn't start dialysis because their kidney function improved. And immediately following on the completion of Akiki, they took the findings there and kind of classic, you know, the th- scientific method to say, well, what's the next question? The next question, well, is if late dialysis is equivalent to early dialysis, maybe even later dialysis will be even equivalent to late dialysis. And that is the question that we're going to be asking in a Kiki 2, is does very late dialysis compare to late dialysis? And to kind of set the the stage here, I asked Jay to kind of prepare, give us a sense of the state of the initiation of dialysis science as of the day before the Kiki 2 was published. Can you, can you help us out there, Jay? But I'll start in 2004 or so when we sort of defined early and late dialysis. There were lots of studies that were single center or uh, retrospective data. And there was a large scale meta-analysis that was published in AK- AJKD that sort of said, hey, early dialysis is better. But it was filled with lots of flawed studies in terms of lots of publication bias. And then as we move forward to the time of the original Akiki, at the same time it was published, the Akiki and Elaine trials came out. And Akiki was, as uh, Joel described, and Elaine was a study that was done predominantly in surgical patients rather than mixed medical surgical patients like in Akiki. And it actually showed that early dialysis was better, but it was a single center study, and almost everyone in that study got dialysis. Yeah, but with the, with the meta-analysis of observational studies, I think one of the issues has been that they take patients who started early and they take patients who started late. They don't take the patients who never needed to start in, in those observational studies, right? And, and the, the benefit you see is, is in that thing, right? The people who are able to avoid dialysis, they don't have the complications of dialysis and they don't have the complications such as dialysis dependence that come with, you know, doing dialysis in AKI. Uh, and that's one of the, I think, the biggest flaws, right, of, of the observational literature until these RCTs happened. 
So I think that that's true swap, but I'd also push back and tell you that people who don't have dialysis requiring AKI, I think that they've got a different form of AKI than maybe some of the people who eventually need it, right? But yes, I hear you that there are a multitude of flaws in some of that pre-Akiki 1, pre-Elaine trials, even the ones that were single center RCTs that had strict uh, entry criteria, like a, a paper by Bauman et al. But for sure, I think it sort of speaks to the idea that we don't really understand in my mind what AKI is, not to be all metaphysical about it, that it's just changes in serum creatinine or changes of BUN or drops in creatinine, but what's happening inside the kidney is very, very different. And we don't, we don't have a great understanding and we've used these proxies to sort of figure that out. And not all changes in creatinine or drops in urine output or rises in BUN, as we'll talk about in the Kiki 2, translate to the same pathophysiologic process, which is part of my concern. I, I would say that, Joel, your first question was asking about the science of it. I would say that we don't understand the science of dialysis. I think we understand a lot about the pathophysiology of AKI and its remote effects, but our understanding of what dialysis is doing for our patients is pretty minimal. And I think it's a point I've been making for a while that we really have to think about what problem we're trying to solve with dialysis. And dialysis at its core is really pretty simple. I mean, we can fix bicarbonate, we can lower BUN, we can get volume status under control. But I don't know if it's reasonable to expect much more from dialysis than we have right now. Perhaps a better understanding of what we're doing with dialysis and what we're removing and perhaps the potential harms could lead us forward. But I guess I'm getting to my conclusions already, but I, th I think we're already there with what dialysis can accomplish in our patients. So Wait, maybe... so you're saying the, the purpose of dialysis is not to make the numbers normal for the ICU doctors? Well, I think we all end up, <laughs> at some point, our goal is to make the numbers normal. We do that, and then that's it. There's other things we have to start thinking about besides making the numbers normal. In fact, Joel, I thought your introduction to the START AKI trial was exactly right, that we're going to be Joes in nephrology decade after decade wondering why dialysis isn't the panacea we thought it would be. This has been going on since the 1950s, that we've had patients with normal electrolytes, and then we scratch our heads and are like, dang, they're, they're still dying of sepsis and other infections. Okay, so Jay, we had a Kiki and a Lane, and then since then we've had Ideal and Start AKI. That's a lot of randomized controlled trials for one question, right? Like rarely in you know in nephrology, we're always complaining about, oh, there's no RCTs and no RCTs. We've got five now RCTs on right. the same question. Right, five in, the last, uh, five in the last five years, roughly, right? I think that for ideal ICU, very, very similar to Akiki, except it was specific to sepsis AKI, the idea of delayed versus early different French multi-center study, but the same idea and even done in some of the same hospitals, demonstrating the same phenomena, by which I mean no improved, no improved mortality with early dialysis and that you can avoid doing dialysis, as Swap was talking about, in a select group of, of people. That in the delayed arm in Ideal ICU, about 60% of the folks didn't wind up uh, getting dialysis. And that was very similar, in fact, to the START AKI, which is sort of the mother of all 
uh, of these trials. It was 3,000 people, mixed medical surgical, starting and enrolling people when they had stage two AKI and doing it early or waiting until they had a specific, you know, a traditional indication. And there they also found the same thing, that early initiation didn't improve outcomes. And in fact, there they found that early initiation to the point I think Swap was making earlier actually led to a greater chance of dialysis dependence, that the folks who were started early were more likely to be on dialysis 90 days after uh, they were enrolled. They were more likely to still be on dialysis. I think the hazard ratio was somewhere around 1.7 for that. Okay, so we have a consensus between Akiki, Ideal, and Start AKI. All of them say no indication for early dialysis or no signal that early dialysis improved outcomes. The one outlier is Elaine, which is among the smallest of all of these trials and had an incredibly early start of dialysis, things that I would find mostly unacceptable. Yeah. Swap has got his finger up. <laughs> and it was, it was not, let's do dialysis early versus wait for a clinical indication. It was like, let's do dialysis now or let's do dialysis after 12 hours. So every patient, almost all the patients, even in the late, which was, it was kind of very early versus early. So like nine, more than 90% in the sort of late also got dialysis. And if the benefit of not, you know, in the late arm is of by not doing dialysis at all, then there's going to be no benefit in that group, right? So that's perhaps, you know, one of the explanations. I'm sure there are many more, but that's part of one of the explanations, right? Jay also wants to say something though. So I agree with you, Swap, that it was early versus very early, but the difference in the time between those two arms in a lane was about 25 hours. It wasn't all that different from, I think, the time in the START RRT trial, that it was still under 30 hours. So that I hear you, you're taking stage two and doing it uh, very, very early. I think the other point I would make about Elaine was entirely a surgical study and that in the surgical population in the study that was 10 times larger, START RRT, the surgical population didn't derive a benefit. So when they did the subgroup analysis and it was larger than the original single center study in a multi-center fashion, it didn't it didn't bear fruit. So I do think that there are differences between surgical AKI and medical AKI and other forms of it. And so I, I wouldn't say I was holding out hope that Elaine could be replicated. But for me, that sort of put a nail in the coffin, the idea that here in this large scale, larger multi-center trial, the same patients, you know, didn't show any benefit. In fact, I think that the non-significant hazard ratio flipped and went the other way in, in the START RRT group. Okay, Sarah, is Akiki 2 asking the right question. With all this randomized controlled data showing that early doesn't help, is the right logical question, can we go even later? I think that this is one of the logical questions. Although I have to say, I mean, they really did late initiation as their late initiation. And I, I was kind of sweating when I was reading it. Like, it was really, really late. The question here is, is the question that they're asking the right question? It's a good question. It's a good question. Jay, you agree? I think it's a very fair question. Man, what, did you have any other thoughts, Sophia? Any other thoughts? I, I felt the same way. I mean, we're going to get to methods. I was nervous reading the paper, thinking about my conversation with ICU doctors being like, oh, they've been anuric for three days. We're good. Let's keep watching. So... Yeah, I agree. You know, the other thing is that AKI is such a heterogeneous disease. And I think it's incredibly difficult to identify when it's the appropriate time to be dialyzing somebody. And I think it's not like someone who has an MI and we go and take them for a PCI and we stent something. 
everything is different. So I, it, to me, I feel like this is not a one fits all. And I think it's really challenging to design something in order to test something like this. So I agree. And the one thing I would say is, and we'll talk about the results later, like start RRT set us up quite nicely so that we could say, Hey, there's no indication. We're not dialyzing. We'll follow along. And sometimes that's a good out when you're with when you're in a tricky situation, if I can be honest with you, whether it's someone that you don't want to start, but the family is pushing to start it. And it gave the community a way to say, look, there's there's no role. And in fact, we may be doing harm. So I would tell you from that perspective, maybe not such a great question to be asking because it's going it has the potential to sort of say, hey, wait, no, we got we have to do something in a situation where I felt like I was looking like a genius when I was citing literature in my notes saying, no, I'm not going to start this person. There's no hard indication and they're going to be at increased risk for long-term dialysis, which is something specifically people don't want, right? When we're talking to families or patients in the room, they're always asking about what the chance for recovery is. And you can't, you couldn't say, hey, starting early is going to improve your chance for recovery. So well, Especially because Start RRT did not have a BUN criteria. Is that right? They did not have a threshold where you had to start. Yeah, they didn't right. have a BUN criteria. They didn't even have a chloride criteria. Ah, <laughs> oh, they should have. They that would have changed they, everything. No, no, but they had, there was a clock, right? It was a certain number of hours of anuria oliguria that finally kicked them to start dialysis in the late group. Am I right on that in start AKI? Yeah. Well, it was 12 hours in the early group. No, but in the late, I thought there was eventually like three days. Yeah, yeah, three days, like, yeah, was it? with non-recovery. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and Swap was a PI. I mean, he, he practically was one of the lead authors of that study. <laughs> I'm not even in the this author is not list. True? It's, I'm not even in the author list. I'm in the supplement, I think. So you have to read the supplement. <laughs> well, that's the author's list. That, that counts. Google Scholar will list you as, as an author. Yeah, so will PubMed. Yeah, you're good. And so, and so we'll you can't escape your that. Your H index is skyrocketing, I'm sure. <laughs> I've got a new one Yeah, well. <laughs> Joel just won't see it because he doesn't read the supplement. But I don't read the supplement. But yeah, everybody knows that the H index, it stands for higher. <laughs> okay, swap. swap. I can't believe they didn't take care of their co-Canadian authors. That's horrible. <laughs> it's, a, it's a travesty. Swap, tell us about methods. So, so this was not a Canadian uh, study. This was a French uh, study. Uh, we have a lot of... It's its first ding right there. I'm not even sure we should keep reading. Not Canadian. Toss this thing. <laughs> but, but we have a lot of French people in, in Canada, so we'll, we'll accept it. Uh, swap, did you read this article in its native French? I, I don't speak a word of French. <laughs> Oh my gosh, so disappointing. Okay, okay. Mr. Yeah, Ottawa, before I before on. I get kicked out of my naturalized citizenship, I'll go on. So it was done in 39 ICUs in France, funded by the French government and the institutions. No industry funding there. And, and again, the key part here is which patients were included. Like the early and late part is fine, but let's come to what kind of patients are included. So these trials are tricky, right? So you need to capture the patients and then follow them and see what is happening so that you can intervene and randomize at the right time. So you had patients who were critically ill in the ICU, either on pressors or on a ventilator, and they had to have KDGO stage 1 AKI. That's the first point. That's the patients who start in the figure 1 right on top. And then they were observed for... I thought it was stage 3. I thought it was AKI stage 3. Wait, wait, wait. You take patients who are stage 1 AKI and then you observe them. And oh. you see what happens. You don't randomize them there. Okay, you, you see what happens. Uh, so, okay, I'm sorry. Yeah, and then you okay, wait for something to happen. And you wait for stage 3 KDGO AKI to happen. And then uh, that's the subgroup that you're following even more closely, right? So if you go in the results, uh, which I'm not going, you know, that's uh, you start with a large cohort. 
then you come with a smaller cohort and in between that happening stage 1 to stage 3 when you will see with the results a bunch of patients recover and a bunch of patients start dialysis right so they do start dialysis between stage 1 stage 3 as we know there are clinical indications someone can develop pulmonary edema or hyperkalemia so so don't think that this is the only thing right it doesn't mean that you have to wait until stage 3 happens clinical indication they had 70 patients they had 70 patients get a kidney transplant are you doing a lot of transplants for patients with stage 1 aki is that one of the therapies that we're thinking of that we're investigating yeah it's kind of odd but i let i let sophie handle the results aspects for that and then once they had stage 3 aki they said hey you know let's wait for something even worse to happen and what do we mean by that it's like they have to have oliguria or anuria for 3 days that's the thing that makes all of us start sweating because once anuria oliguria kicks in you know that bad things are going to come right the pulmonary edema hyperkalemia maybe hyperchloremia but uh, metabolic acidosis are very close behind uh, so you are going to get a real classic indication very soon once anuria kicks in but once anuria kicked in they had to have that for 3 days so you could not you know randomize the patient until they had 3 days of oliganuria or a urea like a bun of 112 which for non americans is a urea of 40 millimoles per liter so you have to wait until that happens and then they were eligible to get randomized uh, so that's like the kicker right so is this you know is this anyone's practice and it's something you have to think about is is do you actually do this but again they use this because that was the late in kiki so that is was it an and was it an and or or it was an it's or. an or yeah. i thought it was an yeah. or it's yeah, an it's or, an or. It's, an it's either an elevated b a b1 of 112 or anuria oligonuria for 3 days so it was an or but you know it's it's both of those criteria are kind of you know it make you a little bit worried uh, and then they were randomized to either starting dialysis within 12 hours or the waiting Uh, even longer to start dialysis if anyone had an urgent indication of course in either arm they could clinically they could start dialysis otherwise the rest of the stuff is is pretty plain vanilla except for a few highlights so the randomization was clear it was uh, computer generated the allocation concealment was good so all the other things we look for rcts were pretty legit it was open label of course it's hard to do sham dialysis or something in a study like this they they go a little bit in detail about recovery because the primary outcome here was not mortality it was a uh, number of rrt free days in 28 days and that's a change it, it, right that's a change from a kiki right and i think and in fact all of the other initiation of dialysis studies none of them have used this outcome is that is that right yeah and i think it was powered based on what they saw in a kiki right so so they saw that the benefit was derived from people not needing dialysis so they said hey this is really important and let's power the study for that outcome perhaps and, and partly for that reason they they go about the details of when to stop dialysis right because rrt free can either be because you didn't need dialysis or it could be because you needed it but you recovered so how is recovery being described so they do go a little bit into you know if the urine output was good was you know more than 500 they uh, mils a day they thought about recovery or or if it was more than 1000 spontaneously then it was recommended so so they they go a little bit more into that just because that is part of the outcome recommending is different than protocolizing right i mean it ends up being a little bit soft they don't have It, well, it, it does but you know urine output is not the only thing right i mean how much can you protocolize you know if someone still has you know if the urine output is good but they still have a lot of oxygen requirement then are you going to stop but, you know the dialysis but uh, are, are, aren't these going to affect the results potentially i mean you're looking at you know rrt yeah. days free and it's not a mandate right it's up to the the treating clinician to say okay we can take them off and 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 an unblinded treating clinician 
Yeah, yeah. And this is there, but you're going to assume that people are, you know, clinicians have the best interest of the patients at heart. It's not going to be, hey, I'm going to keep this patient on because they are, you know. But, but it's not even that. It's maybe different practice, you mm-hmm. know, patterns, right? We we don't know when to necessarily stop dialysis always. And again, a, a suggestion is different than a mandate that this person should come off dialysis. Yeah, but I hear what you're saying, but I think that's fair. Does your hospital, do any of your hospitals have a, a, a protocol for when you stop dialysis? Or is it like, oh, hey, I feel like we, why don't we give it a shot see what happens cross my fingers and go well that's exactly what it is but that decision isn't tied to the primary outcome of a trial i hear you that there's the potential for it but that's a real world practice that they're doing they're saying yeah we we haven't protocolized this maybe that'd be when i get my smoking jacket when we review that third paper where they're protocolizing how to stop dialysis because there really isn't one right and there could be people as you're saying who, who are making a liter of urine but if they got three liters in that liter of urine isn't worth anything, right? You're still going to want to dialyze that that person if they're on amio and heparin and a whole bunch of other large volume drips, right? No, I get that. But if, if I, I get that it's a subjective decision, but the objective decision was they made this as a primary outcome. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's not it's right? not perfect, but I think it's as as good as can be. I know you guys are quibbling about it. Sarah, you look like you want to say something. Oh, I was just going to say, I, I think this was a good endpoint for this study. Like they, this was powered to answer this question. And this was the endpoint I think that people were wondering about based on what Jay had said with the earlier start being associated with more harms. And so the potential, it was a good hypothesis. We think more dialysis begets dialysis and we are wondering if that's true. What I would say to your point though, is I think it makes sense that it, you know, it should have maybe been standardized discontinuation, but you kind of have the same docs in the mix who probably have the same practices. So you might think that could sort of average out over time. So I, I, it doesn't bother me that much that it wasn't protocolized. And I think we do sort of have a reasonable answer to the question. I, I, I think this was reasonable what they proposed and did. Right. I guess the other point would be, what would be the endpoint you want? Mortality? But this is already a group that in the other study has maybe not has as high a mortality. And so that it becomes a much larger study if you if you target mortality, right? So I think that they were being economically or, you know, from a trial perspective, fiscally smart. And let's be honest. From, uh, from, a, from a, oh, a trial perspective. From a trial oh, perspective, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. fiscally mm-hmm. smart. And then let's be honest that every... It's common in nephrology for us to borrow from other fields in, in trials. And this idea of vent-free, you know, going back to things like the FACT trial, where they actually looked at vent and ICU-free days as an endpoint. And I'm sure your intensivists at some point in time talked to you about, hey, it's a positive trial because there were fewer ICU-free days, even though people died in the hospital. I just view this as a way to sort of co-opt uh, a similar idea that uh, the more studies we'll see talking about RRT-free days around AKI, the more comfortable we'll be with it. Boy, that would be great if we could have as much success in AKI as they've had in ARDS. That would be awesome. <laughs> we can dialyze them prone. You can't see the sarcasm that he's throwing my way. It's very hurtful. Usually I give the sarcasm. I don't get the sarcasm. I have to disagree. Okay, Fabultis, take us to school. Tell us how they've done. Oh, well, the mortality of ARDS when I was a fellow was around 40% because of good ventilator management and basically good doctoring and lower infection rates. The mortality of ARDS is now down into the 20s. There, there's, is this major, lo- 
this is the lower tidal volume is the main change in, in therapy? Yeah. Well, a, whole bunch, a whole bunch of different things, right? Lower tidal volume. And they've, they've, I think more importantly, what they've done that fluid, we haven't done is they've cr- yeah, created Fluid a administration, keeping the lungs dry, has the ARDS net and being organized and these simple interventions. Yeah, low tidal volume ventilation, better fluid management, and better infection control has made us go from 40% mortality to in the 20s um in fact okay so let's, let's flip let's flip that around was there a big study that has demonstrated this is just historical data showing a gradual improvement in outcome and Low i think versus, nimbex um, showed a mortality benefit as well yeah and what's nimbex what was, what was the N- nimbex? neuromuscular blockade with oh, what yeah, is cystachycarium yeah mm-hmm. i think the other thing that they've got is they've got a bunch of other studies that didn't show benefit right so i mean we have some of those in nephrology but they've got large-scale trials looking at statins, trials looking at ECMO, trials looking at a bunch of different things that have demonstrated no, no benefit, some benefit, but they've also created a network. And more importantly, they've created uh, this idea that this is an important topic and that we have to keep feeding the beast, which is not something as nephrologists that we have done at the NIH or on any level to say, hey, this is an important issue. Look what we can do. If you put your money behind us, we can get you answers to questions, whether they be. Uh, They're doing it in France. Not. They got a sequel. They got a Kiki, and then it's sequel. Exactly. I mean, I mean, the uh, a Kiki you know, dialysis strikes back. Yeah, be, yeah be, and <laughs> they got a they got a sequel done really fast. Like, yeah, this I, is I mean, amazing to me. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we didn't go into the discussion here, and I didn't want to, but I remember Akiki, they did not need to consent the patient. So because they were standard of care, sort of, and in France, it was allowed to waive the consent. There was like an information sheet that was given where patients could later on decline, perhaps. But if, you know, if the doc said, yeah, they, they went ahead and enrolled, which helps a lot, right? And I suspect Akiki too was similar. They don't, they don't spell it out. No, actually, I thought that they did, they did mention it. My favorite part was that the study protocol was approved by the competent French legal authority. And competent legal authority is not capitalized. It is actually a description of the legal authority. It is not the name of the legal authority. It is the description of it, as opposed to the incompetent legal authority, which they considered using, but decided to go with the competent legal authority, which I loved. <laughs> Swap, where, any more methods or are we done with methods? Um, so so the, the outcome, yeah, so the outcome, the way it was powered was in Akiki, they had 17 RRT-free days out of 28. And they said, okay, maybe we'll get four extra days. And that's what it was powered for, that 80% power to get that outcome. Uh, and they needed 270 patients. So uh, apart from the primary outcome, they had a bunch of secondary outcomes, including vital status at 28 and 60 days, which would be, I guess, mortality uh, and many other things. But one of the post-hoc analysis was looking at the 60-day outcome. And, I, and we'll see in the results why the 60-day mortality is important. But they broke down the 60-day mortality on the basis of BUN, or oliganuria, which were the two ways you could, you know, enter the trial. So they do, did that kind of a subgroup of the outcome that popped out as being important as a postdoc analysis. Okay, Jay, I suppose this is not your first AKI paper. You've read a lot of these. You're looking at these this methods. How would you grade the methods on this? A through E? I would say B, B plus. I think that it's well, fair. Where are the weaknesses? That's a pretty good grade, but... I remember when I asked you the same question at start, you gave it an A for start AKI. So what were your concerning points here in the methods? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think that for me, as I said before, one of the, uh, I still don't know that it is our practice in Chicago that we let people sit, you know, that we let that many people sit like this, which is, uh, I think, why I would say it's concerning to me. Certainly there are times or unique situations where we do, but for me, as I wrote, it's very rare that I would wait until someone has three days of anuria or a increase to 140 to do it. And then I do think that there's, I'm more interested in mortality. We sort of already discussed that as the primary endpoint and why they didn't do it. As someone who tries to do uh, clinical research, I understand maybe why they did it. So I, I don't want to take off uh, large, you know, large chunks. So I would say sort of a, a BB plus. I think it's an, uh, I think it's an important question. It's good to follow up. And there's, as we'll talk about in the results, there's still a lot to learn about these patients. Can you walk me through the BUN criteria? Is this something that has historical basis? Is it just something that we've been pushing the envelope just to make it, just to have an arbitrary number? Where does that come from? Uh, I, I do not know the answer to the question you are asking me. Right. I think that there are several studies. That I talked about the Bauman study from 2002, which was one of the few sort of multi-center randomized trials where they used 112 as part of their uh, criteria for late start. But where that comes from, I don't know if it relates to the conversion. I'm not very strong at converting BUN. Perhaps swap can do it in French for me later. I don't know. No. But the idea, I don't know where it came from. I think it's nice round numbers, right? I guess I would say it'd be great. I still have doctors in our hospital who every once in a while say, yeah, we called you because the BUN was 100. And we wanted you to say, we're, you know, we shouldn't offer this person dialysis and that the 100 makes them nervous. I don't know the if there is a historical basis for the numbers that they chose. I'm unaware of what they are outside of what they did for a Kiki 1. So Dr. Pat Murray, who trained both Jay and myself, used to talk about old data from the 70s that looked at BUNs over 100. And when the BUN crossed 100, there was increased risk of bleeding when you placed access. And so that kind of became a soft line in the sand that you wanted to start, at least get your dialysis access in before the BUN was over 100. But... Right. But back then they were also putting in for really sick patients, arterial and venous lines because they weren't doing CVVH or CVVHD. They were doing CAVH, you know. So I think that that played a role into it. Sarah, do you have any thoughts on the methods? That you, any, any other further last critiques before we move on to results? I'll just say that these higher BUNs really help to answer the question. If this was like 70 versus 90, we'd be like, eh, I don't know. But they they push the envelope of delayed start and later start. And so I th think they really did a method approach that would answer that question. Outstanding. Okay, Sophia, lay some results on us. Okay, so the duration of the study was between May 2018 through October of 2019. There were 5,336 patients with stage 1 AKA that were assessed for the study. 767 of the patients were identified with stage 3 AKI as defined by KDGO standards. They were identified and monitored for recurrence of the randomization criteria. So 10 were essentially ex excluded for erroneous inclusion, and then 127 received RRT for urgent indications, which SWAP already delineated, and that was prior to reaching randomization. So among the 757 patients, 278, which is about 37%, underwent randomization. 137 of them were assigned to the delayed strategy group, and then 141 were assigned to the more delayed strategy. The groups were evenly distributed. Characteristics at baseline were the following. 31% were female, 
Comorbid conditions included 10% with underlying CKD, 25% with diabetes, interestingly actually 29% were in the delayed and 22 in the more delayed, 55% were in septic shock, 76% were on mechanical ven- ventilation, and this actually increased about 82% upon randomization, and then 79% were on pressors, either epi or norepinephrine, which actually was decreased to 60 to 70% upon randomization. Pertinent lab values upon randomization included a serum creatinine that ranged between 5 and 6, a BUN around 100, serum potassium of 4.5, and serum bicarb around 19. Within the delayed strategy group, 98% received renal replacement therapy, whereas in the more delayed strategy group, 79% received RRT. Right, and just help me out. It should be 100%, right? The For the delayed strategy, that should be 100%, and with the more delayed, then it's whatever it comes out to be. Is that, is that right? Is that 98? That, that, that's the protocol. Is if you're in the delayed strategy, you start dialysis. Am I missing something there? Yeah, but- and I'm mean, not being critical. I mean, 98% is pretty damn close, but it's supposed to be 100, right? Yeah. Yeah, that was my yeah, understanding okay. as well. Right, but Correct. but sometimes okay. by the time sure you start dialysis, something happens, right? In that period, no, no, no. In the first I get it. Hours. I get it. I get it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Ninety-eight is pretty darn close. I'm good with that. Okay. Yeah, intermittent hemodialysis was the most frequently use, utilized form of RRT for the first session in both groups. The most common reason for initiation of RRT in the more delayed group was a BUN of greater than one forty, and that was fifty-nine percent. Wow. Yeah, that's the thing, right? Like they're, they're already aneuric. And I said that if they have anuria, they're going to get hyperkalemia and metabolic acidosis. But somehow that didn't happen. They went on to get even higher BUN, which is very cool. Look at the, the figure one to me is still fascinating because a, a lot of people are requiring dialysis at each stage, right? Some people look at these studies and say, oh, you should not start dialysis until the BUN is, you know, 112. I think that's the wrong answer, right? It's like if you do not have any other indication like hyperkalemia, pulmonary edema, or whatever, then maybe it's okay to wait until a certain BUN, perhaps, is one way to look at it. And even in, in START AKI, if you see out of the, they had like 23,000 patients, and a bunch of patients actually started dialysis before they were eligible to be randomized. So that happens in all studies, and, in, and from being eligible to being fully eligible, a bunch of other patients started dialysis or they recovered. So this happens throughout in the figure one in any AKI trial. Well, clinically, how much of us actually do start dialysis for patients based on a BUN criteria alone? It, it makes me more nervous in here if they were also aneuric for three days and had a BUN that high, then that's a different situation. I think it would be nice to know what the nutrition supplementation practices were, because I have to say BUNs seem a lot higher at our institution just in the last few years based on aggressive nutrition supplementation. And do people still give, I know here people are still getting steroids for refractory shock, which will obviously influence your BUN as well. I think that those are reasonable numbers for sure. There are lots of different reasons why BUNs can be high. I will tell you that in, in the wake of START RRT, we definitely are seeing higher BUNs because we're not as aggressive with initiating dialysis in folks, but I'm on service this week. The only people that we see with BUNs of 140 are people we are actively trying to run the stall on or people who have some other issue going on where we're waiting for neuroprognostication, say after a cardiac arrest, or there's BUN issues from nutrition or GI bleed or steroids or other things where it's, at a, it's disproportional to what the creatinine is. 
I mean, I have some heart failure patients that I'm keeping off of dialysis, some CKD stage five with heart failure that run B1s of 110, 120 and are fine, not ICU patients doing great. And I always feel that they're a hop, skip and a jump from 140, right? They stub their toe and they're going to get a, a B1 at 140. Right. So moving on to primary outcome. What was the other 41%? How did how, how that break down the other oh, 41%? So basically the next one was the potassium concentration and that was 20%. 13% for a pH of less than 7.15 and 10% for pulmonary edema. I'm just stunned that it's so low for pulmonary edema, right? These are I know, patients that I to be like enrolled. They had to be aneuric for three days. I would think these guys would be bursting at the seams by the time they got there. I'm surprised. Well, but that's also the the evolution of, of volume strategy, right? With, I think, ICU patients, less volume, moving to vasopressors early. Right. Yeah, we keep them dry now. You wonder if yeah. these if these institutions also that have been doing these studies and have become very practiced at doing them have become a little bit more practiced at volume and not over repleting and causing volume overload. Where I practice, it seems to be pretty common. By the time we're involved, that's already a problem. I think we've come a long way from rivers, right? So. Yeah, and, and partly maybe different. that the patients we see are the sicker ones, right? By the time nephrology gets called, they are in pulmonary edema. So that may be a selection bias also. Nine in Detroit, we call them St. Rivers, okay? <laughs> oh, yeah. It's real, you need to be real careful about what you say about Mr. Dr. Rivers, okay? Because everybody's trained under him. Oh, I trained with Dr. Rivers. Noted. So Dr. Rivers is a critical care ER doc at a Henry Ford Hospital in Detroit, and he did a study looking at what was called a goal-directed therapy for initial management of sepsis, which really focused on a lot of volume replacement and measurement of a mixed venous O2 sats, a lot of techniques that really have been discredited since then, but it really shaped a lot of modern resuscitation therapy. We're beginning to unwind a lot of these lessons subsequently, but for a long time, it dominated the field of uh, sepsis management. Anybody else have anything else to mention about Rivers? Not about Rivers, but I would just equate it to the Elaine trial and the other trials that we talked about, where he did a single center trial that was uh, positive, and then multiple multi-center trials in a bunch of different settings proved it to not be true. Right. And you can imagine that if Elaine had come out not simultaneously with a Kiki, it probably would have changed management, right? For sure. Yeah, for sure. It's kind of scary, actually, to think of it that way. I want to give a shout out to nephrology because we're doing large studies now that are answering questions. And Glenn Turtow is the one that kind of made me first start thinking about this, that a negative trial that answers a question is a fantastic clinical trial. And we are asking and answering questions because we're enrolling a large number of patients and really doing well with our methods. So I'm, I'm thrilled with how nephrology is doing right now. That's right. If you can give an A to the methods, if you give that, when they finish going over the methods, you're like, that's a good, well done trial. It doesn't matter whether it's positive or negative, you're going to learn something. Yeah, you've answered a question. Yep. You've answered a question. If I can piggyback on what we just talked about in terms of fluid balance, right? There was just a trial that was published about two weeks ago looking at fluid restriction in the setting of AKI and actually leading to improved outcomes. It was a, a study helmed by Ronaldo Balomo, who's an intensivist in Australia and New Zealand, but it was a multi-center pilot study across Australia, New Zealand, and Europe where they demonstrated that fluid restriction in the setting 
of AKI actually leads to improved care, not necessarily French groups like this, but the same idea that we're, that we're seeing perhaps borne out that Captain Chloride was just talking about, that we, we see fluid res- restriction as part of the standard of, uh, of care, right? I see, see how I did that without butchering your name? I just called you Captain Chloride. That was amazing. It sounds actually pretty, pretty phenomenal, to be honest, Nan. Captain Chloride it is. All right, now that we're done giving each other hugs, should we move on? Please, Sophia. <laughs> All right. So for our primary outcome, which is number of RRT-free days between randomization and day 28, there was no difference between delayed and more delayed strategies, basically 12 versus 10 days with a P of 0.93, which was true for all patients and survivors. For mortality on univaria analysis, at least, day 28 and day 60 mortality did not differ significantly. However, okay, so there was just, a... Can we just stop right there? I just want to make sure we got this solid. So the primary outcome, no difference between late start and really late start. And for the secondary outcome of mortality, no difference between late start and really late start. Yeah, on univariate analysis, yes. There was some trends towards significance where the delayed group demonstrated a 44% mortality rate. And the more delayed group demonstrated a 55% mortality rate with a p-value of 0.07. Basically, the numbers 200 and what was it, 278 patients. Seems like perhaps that was not powered enough. That certainly was a trend that's making us think there might be something there. On multivariate analysis, the risk factors associated with 60-day mortality were one, more delayed strategy. And that was a hazard ratio of 1.65 and confidence intervals of 1.09 to 2.5. To simplified physiology score 3, and that was a hazard ratio of 1.03 with intervals of 1.01 to 1.05. And then third, mechanical ventilation. And that had a hazard ratio of 3.44 with intervals of 1.52 and 7.8. Pressors, sepsis, or time from ICU admission and AKI did not demonstrate a significant difference. So whenever I've, and again, I suck at statistics, but whenever I've had the biostatistician help me do multivariable analysis, we collect all of the things that are significant on univariate analysis, so univariable analysis, and then we put them in. Is it kosher to throw in survival, even though it wasn't significant in the univariate analysis or single variable analysis? Yeah, univariable. You don't you don't say variate here. You say variable. I know, I know. Yeah. I, I it just sounds weird, yeah. but you're right. I get. I know they, the statisticians on Twitter are always snicker, snickering about us fools calling it univariate or multivariate when it's not. And I I never get the joke. I know that I'm the butt of it. I know that they're laughing at me, not with me. But mm, color me a fool too. You let me get all the way through that swap without correcting me. Can I say one thing about the mortality data in terms of the statistics? They have this p-value of 0.071 for the 60-day mortality, and that's 44 versus 55%. But then if you look at hospital discharge, that p-value for the difference is 0.15, and it's almost the same numbers, 45% versus 53%. And at ICU, discharge is not significant, and they're very similar numbers. So it really took just a couple of patients going one way or the other, like three, to make that go from 0.15 to 0.071. So 
I mean, Sophie, you brought this up that it wasn't powered to detect a mortality difference. It's not as strong as a signal as they might be saying, although certainly there's no signal for benefit. I'm willing to accept that completely. I just thought that was sort of interesting, like kind of looking at a, the numbers a little bit closer. But why would we think there would be no mortality difference at 28 days, but there would be at 60 days? I mean, I, I don't even know why that would, like practically why that would be, be uh, true. Nan, you just opened a box with Sarah. <laughs> a good box or a bad box? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just thinking of AKI and what it truly means to our body. I'm trained under Sarah and she's one of my mentors. So pretty much her teaching is what I understand of AKI. But basically the multi-organ dysfunction from AKI and the long-term problems related to it, whether we come off our RT or not, is pretty substantial. I thought that was very well said. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, bad things keep happening, right? And, and there is a lot of bad things post-AKI. Mm-hmm. Basically, from a stats point of view, you're getting more events with time. So, so the numbers keep adding up. But you're right, absolutely right, Sarah. It's like the number of events are small, so it doesn't take many events, you know, two or three events going from here and there for, for this kind of thing to happen. Um, yeah, I think that's the sort of the main point I was trying to make. You could go full Bayesian and say, hey, what was your a priori hypothesis and, and how much does this change? Is it surprising that we see that delaying in aneuric patients is going to be bad? It's not surprising. It's pretty plausible a result. Yeah, I would have thought, honestly, I would have thought delaying would have resulted in effects at like day seven. I think it's strange that they didn't all have pericarditis or dialysis disequilibrium or I, I don't know what or something horribly tragic like early on, the fact that it took 60 days to see this signal, especially when all the other complications were the same between the groups. It's very strange yeah, that there wasn't but, another but signal. But remember, we, they carefully selected a population that did not develop hyperkalemia with three days of anuria. Right? <laughs> this is not... Right, no, that, I mean, that's what it took to enroll, is that you didn't have an acute indication for dialysis yeah. after three days of anuria... This is not everybody that we see on AKI, and you saw that in that figure one. They kept losing patients. Swap was talking about, oh, these patients had to start dialysis before they could get randomized. I'm like, yeah, because they weren't able to tolerate three days of anuria. Right. It speaks to what I think I was saying before, that it's a special breed or special type of AKI that these people have. Very, you know, very different that they can just go and go and go and, and be okay. Right. None of these people had rhabdo, for example, where they would have had hyperkalemia long before <laughs> they could smell this study. For sure. You know, the other thing that I do want to mention is if you actually look at day 28 mortality, day 60 mortality, ICU discharge, I mean, day 28, 38% in the delayed group had mortality, whereas 45% in the more delayed group. And that's a p-value of 0.26. And you really think that that's a pretty dramatic difference in percentages. I just feel like this is altogether way too underpowered to really be able to take too much from a conclusion perspective on mortality. Yeah, and that's always the case, right? The larger the trial, the better it is. But like Jay was uh, saying about cost and, and the logistics, like it, it, there is a tension between enrolling a million patients and enrolling 100 patients, right? There's an equilibrium that people reach saying, hey, this is the best we can do. This also makes me realize that I'm not good at knowing which patients are going to progress to needing dialysis. I mean, isn't it 20% of the patients in the more delayed group didn't 
end up needing dialysis in this in this study, right? So I I don't know how to know which patients those are. Yeah, yeah. I wish there were some biomarkers or some some kind of a test that you could do that would tell you who's going to recover or not. Test. Yeah, you could stress, stress the kidney. Stress test. Oh, yeah. If you what? could stress the kidney. <laughs> Yeah, so I I would say there are two things. One, that when we did the furosemide stress test, we didn't do it in these people, right? And even when someone like Natasha Siraswat in Thailand did it to start RRT, he still did it in folks who had early stage three. So we're not talking about people who are three days into their anuria. Someone has usually given those people a dose of furosemide. Jay, can you, just for the listeners sure. that don't know what a furosemide stress, first of all, Jay Coiner usually introduces himself as the inventor of the Ferrosamide stress test. That's usually, you know, it, it, that's how it's, it says, hello, my name is Mr. Ferrosamide stress test. I'm going to cut you off there, my friend. I definitely <laughs> don't do that because I will tell you that Mink Chawla, who some of you may know, I don't know that he's on Twitter. He's the one who at a meeting at the NIH said, hey, we're doing this thing. You want to take part in it? And I was like, yeah, I already do that. You know, every Friday afternoon, why don't we team up? And then Mink so what, will okay. work for industry. So Jay is pop is erroneously accredited with creating the ferrosomide stress test. What is this ferrosomide stress test and how should we be doing it? Where is it appropriate and how is it used? Right. So the ferrosomide stress test is uh, the idea that if you give a patient who has early AKI, so st- stage one or stage two, a protocolized dose of a loop diuretic, we used one mg per kg or 1.5 mg per kg of furosemide IV for people who were a loop diuretic naive or 1.5 and those who received loops before. And you give it to them and then you look at their urine output over the next two hours to see whether or not they respond to it. Recognizing that furosemide and the response to it requires an intact proximal tubule loop distal tubule and collecting duct to be working. And we demonstrated that if you make 200 cc's of urine in the first two hours, you're probably not going to progress to stage three, probably not going to need dialysis down the road. We did that in a retrospective cohort, a prospective cohort, and then in a multi-center prospective cohort where, and others have done it as well, demonstrating Somewhere between 150 and 250 cc's in two hours is a pretty good cutoff for a kidney that is going to skirt by and not require dialysis or not going uh, to progress. There are folks who have uh, used it in other settings. Like I was saying, Natasha Saraswat and a group in Thailand used it in folks who had stage 3 AKI as a trigger to start dialysis. And they demonstrated that if you don't make 200 cc's, you do go on. Even if you were in a, or they did an early versus late trial and the folks who didn't make urine um, and were in the late arms, still wound up needing dialysis, about 80 to 90% of them. And then there are, apropos of what we were talking about before, Peter Pickers has demonstrated in folks on CRRT that on when you choose to stop at whatever that random time is, if you give them a protocolized dose of furosemide, you can predict who's going to recover or not going to recover. Pickers did that in retrospective data rather than doing it prospectively, but I know that there are other folks looking at it, and we've looked at it in a bunch of other settings as well. A great example is, for years, transplant surgeons have been doing that as they hook up a kidney, and they will give people protocolized doses of furosemide, and it's been shown to predict a delayed graft function or or good function, depending on how much urine you make, right? The, it's all about the nephron, right? And that how loop diuretics use the nephron, and that if your nephron is on, intact, you're going to make urine. If it's not, you're not, and then you know that you're going to be in trouble. It's all about the nephron. 
And then that, that's fantastic. But what, what do you think about these biomarkers? You know, people talk a lot about nephrocheck or what have you. I don't think a proper trial has been done saying, hey, you know, this is the value. Let's do dialysis or not. But people talk about it that way a lot. So, Jay, when you did your study about the furosemide stress test, didn't you compare it to biomarkers? What did you show with that? Yeah, so we did. Um, that's a loaded question. Thank you. Thank you for that very interesting question. Um, so uh, we actually demonstrated. So here, I have to be honest, we collected urine samples. So we measured the biomarkers in a post hoc fashion. I think the other thing to acknowledge is that the biomarkers that we did measure, NGAL and Nefrocheck, important. I didn't know that we were going to be talking about these at the start of the talk. So I do have conflict of interest having received research funds and consultant fees from places like Bioporto and from uh, Astute BioMiru. We measured those biomarkers at the time that we did the FST retrospectively. We enrolled people with the primary purpose of doing the FST and then collected samples beforehand. We demonstrated that, Sarah's right, that if you look at them head to head, some biomarkers like Nefrocheck performed on par with the FST. But I think the important piece if, is if you we measured them together. So if you had, say, an elevated Nefrocheck or an elevated NGAL and then were to do the FST, there's synergy there that you actually increase the AUC from 0.85 to 0.90. I don't know what the clinical meaning of that is, but it's a way to, to think about it. I, the point I would make around, around the biomarkers is that you're measuring those biomarkers in people who already have established AKI, which is not what those biomarkers are intended to do. And you're sort of handcuffing them. So the fact that a test that's designed to predict AKI before it happens can still augment things at the time of AKI is probably useful. And we'll, I don't mean to say it like this, we'll see how it goes. We're actually working on trying to do exactly that. Identify people early, measure the biomarker, and then use that as uh, if you can use the FST earlier, but uh, it's early days on that project is what I would say. I want to hold up for just a moment. Sophia, do we have other results that we need to get through? How, How close to done with the results are you? We're really close. We're so close. Okay, can we hustle through the results and then we can have a little <laughs> bit of time on discussion? I just want to make sure we hit all the results. So there were no observable differences among the other secondary outcomes, which included RRT dependence at 60 days, complications potentially related to AKI or RRT, day two and day seven cumulative fluid balance, weight and edema scales, and nutritional status. And then finally, what we were what Swap was referring to earlier about the post hoc analysis, basically evaluating the groups based on what the patients, the criteria to get into the study on BUN over 112, or a or oliguria, and that also revealed no difference in RRT-free days or mortality at 60 days. And that's pretty much it. Sophia, can you just remind me in the end what was the difference? in time to dialysis between delayed start and really delayed start. How many hours is that? I thought it was 30 hours from my reading, that the delayed arm received dialysis three hours after enrollment as a median, and that the more delayed arm received it 33 hours from a median perspective. Yeah, that's right. 30 hours. Okay. But let's go back to biomarkers. I think Sarah was had some very interesting comments <laughs> okay, on biomarkers. So, I, I want to hear biomarkers. Come on. Well, I, like, I don't. We want to debate. Yeah. Yeah. No, Jay and I did a whole debate for the ASN, and it's kind of funny. We interpret his uh, data differently. I think the furosemide stress test 
was meant to be used in established AKI. I use it, I find it clinically helpful. And I think the data show that the biomarkers don't add that much to the performance of the furosemide stress test. You know, your comment, I, th I think, was very sincere. Like, I wish we had another test, but I'd throw out there, like, do we need another test? You know, there's no perfect test that tells us when to do anything. We use our clinical judgment. We send people to the cath lab and not everyone has disease. We do breast biopsies and not everyone has cancer. There's no perfect way to know anything. And I think with these recent clinical trials in early versus late versus much later start, I think we have a lot to work with to make good decisions for our patients. I wholeheartedly agree with everything that that you said, Sarah. The only point that I would make is that when you look at something like the the alert trial that Perry Wilson just did, where they're already waiting for creatinine increases to be there, that doing things then clearly has a signal for harm. I guess my point is that I see that there's a potential benefit to having a biomarker that's elevated before creatinine that then tells you to do the FST, even before there's stage one or stage two AKI. And that's what the biomarkers were meant to do, early AKI. I'm mostly okay with that. But in established AKI, okay. <laughs> you know, it'd be a lot of work to find. It'd be a lot of work to... So, uh, agreed. Uh, someone said it before. They were talking about CCL14. There's definite conflict of interest there, but that's a biomarker that does a little bit of what we're describing here. Look, I'm just saying that uh, it's out there and... It, demonstrates the ability to predict some of the things that we're talking about uh, doing to patients in, in a trial like this. Like people talk about biomarkers as if they are, they forecast the future. And, and I'm with Sarah there. People over, over call, oh, nephrocheck is high. I'm going to start dialysis or stuff like that. You see those kind of comments. And I think it's not appropriate to do that. Uh, they don't give that kind of data. I mean, yeah, there's established ATN, but you know, that doesn't mean there's an indication for dialysis. I, I understand the point. I totally respect the point. But look at how cardiology has evolved with their biomarkers, right? And we're sitting here with a creatinine and a BUN for 50 years. No, right? okay. Don't forget urine output. I, don't don't sleep on urine output. Okay. 50 years? What, so, I mean, no. What, like 100, no. 150 heart, years. Okay, okay. That, that argument, the heart, the reason troponin works is because we have a cath lab. Myocardial infarction is simple. There are only two important cells in the heart. It's simple. Vessel closed, open vessel. We don't have treatments for AKI. So even if we diagnose AKI early, we don't have the equivalent cath lab. We need to spend the time developing those therapies first and wait, then wait, use wait, our wait, biomarkers. Wait, wait, wait. What so, about the, this uh, uh, NAD? This Nick, what is that? What is that NAD therapy? What is that? Nick, oh Samir, yeah, that's Samira Parikh stuff. Is is that stuff real or is that stuff bullshit? I think it holds a lot of promise. Yeah, I think it's totally real. I mean, Sophie understands this stuff really well too. What do you think? Oh, I've been quiet over here because I'm not an expert. But I think that from the perspective of acute kidney injury, at least when we know it's an, an ischemic model, that there's a lot of end organ damage and, and there's quite a bit of, of oxidative stress injury that's done. And of course, NADPH, nicotinamide, is one of those cofactors for it. Well, let me just say ATP number one is often depleted. But also to be said is NADPH is necessary for the reduction 
of glutathione and some of our other oxidative reducing agents. And so to be perfectly honest, it would only make sense for nicotinamide or NAD to be something that might be useful in these individuals because really the oxidative stress is rather dramatic. He won Young Investigator Award, what, three years ago at ASN? And his presentation was stunning. And I I can't believe we still haven't seen the big trial. It's one of the most promising things we've seen. They are doing clinical trials and they've published results in patients. That's why it's promising. In patients with sepsis and there's patient data accumulating. I just want to stop and say one thing here, right? We're talking about NAD, NADPH. We can talk about fancy biomarkers. We don't actually do a great job of the things that we think actually work, right? The things that are in the guidelines, some of which are not actually proven by RCTs, but all the things that everyone puts in their notes about like stopping nephrotoxins or making sure MAPs are high. We published a paper with Perry Wilson about half a year ago from Yale and from UFC that shows in patients with stage 2 AKI, they get tons of nephrotoxins. They get lots of hypotension. There's lots of hyperkalemia, even though we're all writing and trying to prevent it. And that's from multi-center data from Yale and UFC, where you've got people like me screaming from the mountaintops about how important AKI is. If we actually do those small things, multiple studies have actually shown improvement in outcomes in folks who've got severe AKI. Nick Selby has done a bunch of different trials that have demonstrated uh, improved outcomes in that setting. So it's great to think about these new drugs and new agents, but the little things that uh, are out there, we don't actually hit targets. You're sort of rolling your eyes at me, Joel, but uh, no, I've been in your hospital. Here's what I'm rolling my eyes. I want to be very specific what I'm rolling my eyes. One is years ago, we ran a show similar to Neff Madness called Dream RCT. And we invited Sarah Fawel to submit her Dream RCT. And I forget the name of it, but her Dream RCT was to do exactly the trials that we're talking about. She wanted to enroll tons of patients with AKI. And I think she was really looking at timing of dialysis or dose of dialysis. She was, it was, it was timing of dialysis, wasn't it? And so her Dream RCT has come about. Perry Wilson also submitted one and his Dream RCT was even though he tells everybody to stop the ACE inhibitors, he really thinks that we should continue the ACE inhibitors. <laughs> or, or give an ACE inhibitor. Yeah, give an ACE inhibitor. Yeah, it give was, an ACE inhibitor. Right, yeah. right, 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 right. And th- that's why I'm rolling my eyes is because we, we say, oh, stop the ACE inhibitors. We have such a fundamental thing that we tell everybody to do. We don't know if it helps. This is the scenario where biomarkers are helpful. I mean, this is a scenario where you can get a biomarker and that's going to identify early AKI. Otherwise, people are on these nephrotoxins for 24 to 48 hours before it's even recognized. So if you do have biomarkers, that is another scenario where we can identify early AKI and start with that process of removing these nephrotoxins. Right. And, and there's data showing that, you know, with, if, if you get a rise in creatinine with either intensive BP control or ACE inhibitors or SGLT2 inhibitors, it's, uh, the biomarkers don't go up. Right, the creatinine goes up, but the biomarker doesn't go up. So it's just hemodynamics, and, and that's why when you stop, it goes down. So if you want to continue ACE inhibitors and the biomarkers are not elevated, maybe that tells you, hey, there's no need to stop because they're not really nephrotoxic drugs. Well, that's a problem. We don't know what nephrotoxins are. There was a study out of what it was in Alberta that showed that if you do stop them, there was a difference in mortality, I think. And right, so right. There was a, we we there don't was even a, know what the nephrotoxins it, it, are. Yeah, it was an observational study, but yes, exactly right. Continuing The people in whom ACE inhibitors were continued had a better outcome than better those outcomes. in whom you had stopped, though, you know, there's that could be some selection bias there. Yeah, I think that what we're highlighting is the idea that if you 
And I think that giving someone RAS or spironolactone is a great way to see whether or not you've got an intact nephron that's supposed to respond the way it's supposed to. And if it does, and you see that bump, and you're not talking like a 100% increase in after starting, but if you see the appropriate bump, it tells you that that's a, a good thing, right? Steve Coca has published that going back to the SOLVE trial, which is the original trial that looked at ACEs in heart failure. And when they looked and saw, hey, these people got the drug rather than the placebo, and they had the bump, those are the people who, who did the best in the setting uh, of a history of acute decompensated heart failure. It's just another, like, you got to follow the physiology, right? Yeah, permissive hypercreatinemia. Sophia, we are now done with results. We're all done. Okay, let me try to summarize this trial. This is a randomized controlled trial of people that have AKI. They enrolled patients that had oligonuria for three days or a BUN greater than 112. At this point, they were randomized to either immediate start on dialysis or a delay in dialysis until they either had dialysis for cause, hyperkalemia, acidosis, fluid overload, or a BUN greater than 140. Their primary outcome was dialysis-free days at 28 days, and there was no difference for their primary outcome. Their secondary outcome included mortality at a bunch of different points, and those were also non-significant across the board. However, when they did multivariable analysis, delayed dialysis became a pretty important risk factor for mortality with a hazard ratio of 1.65. And so we get this final position where we have a study by its primary outcome that's a negative trial, shows no difference in outcomes, but there is a really, it's hard to ignore a hazard ratio of of 1.65 for delayed start dialysis. We're kind of left with this mixed picture. Is that a fair summary of this trial? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I think okay. the, the, yeah, I think we covered it in the discussion that the mortality has lots of asterisks by it, you know, because it was underpowered for that and blah, blah, blah. But it's certainly not showing that this is a good thing. I think the one thing that we didn't maybe touch on that I don't have 100% clarity on is, right, there are people in that delayed arm who had maybe prolonged critical illness and sort of sat. And I wonder how many of those people who never, even though 70 to 80% of them uh, wind up getting dialysis, but how many of them just sort of had prolonged critical illness and eventually had withdrawal of care or goals of care discussions that led to that as opposed to people who were having an active intervention. We didn't talk about that before, but it's got, I imagine that there are going to be a handful of folks. uh, And since we talked about the idea that it's really just a handful of people that flipped the signal in terms of mortality, all it may take is one or two of those people in the delayed arm who just sort of sat around, weren't getting uh, interventions, and then passed away. Wow, that's really interesting. Yeah, I know that. Absolutely. Swap, any final thoughts on this study? Yeah, I, I don't know uh, how useful this study was. You know, I mean, it, it's it's again, it's good to do trials, but I think Start AKI and and Akiki and Ideal ICU had actually answered the questions we wanted. I, I guess for some people who were like, hey, maybe we can do it, you know, late and late and late. But when when we do talk about doing that, we say wait for the clinical indication. We don't say wait for a BUN of 140, right? So I, I'm not sure how clinically relevant this question was, but you know, I'm still happy it was done. For, you know, for that small niche population, it, it just answers that, you know, waiting too long is also not perhaps a good idea. Jay? Yeah, so I, I agree with Swap. I do think, as I alluded to before, it sort of handcuffs you in certain situations where you may not want to be aggressive with dialysis, but now there's data that says, hey, 
you could be putting your patient at higher risk by not dialyzing them, which could be a, a potential issue in certain clinical scenarios. But I think it's important that they did the trial. We'll, we'll see, right? I don't think that it's a practice-changing trial in 95% of the patients that I see, which I think is, you know, but everyone's practice is different. Nayan, any final thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I think I'll echo what most people have said. I think for me, my my looking at my own practice, Start AKI, really established kind of, you know, what I feel like I already do and, and allowed me to point to data when talking to intensive care doctors, you know, CCU docs saying, hey, this is what we have to show that maybe we do wait for an indication. You know, maybe this trial Kiki2 helps in resource limited places where they can say, you know, maybe waiting longer is not the right thing to do. But th- this particular study doesn't change my practice. Sophia? You know, I think what everybody else is saying, I think it's hard to actually find a true scenario where we're going to find a patient like this that hasn't already gone on to dialysis for other emergent or urgent indications like potassium volume. So really, this is, as Swap said, this is such a niche population. It's hard to apply this data across any of my other patients that I'm seeing clinically. Yeah, I agree. I think the generalizability of this study ends up being pretty soft. Sarah, so you're getting funded to do the next big dialysis and AKI study or just AKI study. What what does that look like? What's the next question that we need to be answering? What do we need to be focused on? I am extremely lucky because I'm actually doing the study that I want to do, which is to see what CRT is actually does to stuff. So we are enrolling patients pre-CRT and on days one, two, and three, and we are looking at plasma levels of metabolites and effluent levels to see what is it that dialysis or CRT is actually removing. I guess if I could do a really, really big study, I would wonder if continuous renal replacement therapy really needs to be continuous. We see that BUNs after about two days of CRT are in the 30s. So if we wouldn't initiate dialysis with a BUN of 30, I'm not sure why we're continuing dialysis at that time point. Jay, I'm going to give you a pile of money also. What are you going to investigate? Yeah, so I think that I would tell you that we're already doing a trial that I'm interested in, which is using an early risk score to randomize folks to nephrology intervention early or late. I think with regard, not specific to dialysis, but specific to dialysis, I would tell you the one piece that is woefully unaccounted for in many of the trials we're talking about is the uh, fluid balance piece. And yes, we've talked about the idea that fluid restriction is the way to go, but using fluid balance or fluid overload as an indication for dialysis is probably the next trial that I see happening because people don't want to talk about it, but there are lots of patients who are sitting in the ICU and they're fluid overloaded and maybe they don't have as significant rises in BUN and creatinine because of the volume that we're pumping into them and that folks have done the math uh, to show that if you're six eight, 10 liters positive, your labs don't look the right way because of all of the saline or other things that that have been pumped into you. And if I I could add on uh, a sort of to what um, Sarah was talking about, we don't know what happens with dialysis. You know, my buddy here, Ted Clark, who's a nephrologist in in Ottawa, he coined this very cool term called HERT, so hemodynamic instability during renal replacement therapy. So it's basically intradialytic hypotension, but intradialytic hypotension in the setting of AKI and RRT. So he, you know, the the switch from renal to kidney has just killed that. Otherwise, it's so cool. H-I-R-R-T, which is hurt. 
Uh, so you the kidneys get hurt because of RRT, which is if it fits with what we saw with Star AKI that the fact that more people were put on dialysis and maybe there was something about the dialysis procedure that caused more kidney injury and they remained on dialysis. So we are we have a research program and we just concluded the pilot trial on trying to reduce hypotension by giving them albumin. It's just a pilot trial. I can't say anything more, but it's promising enough that I think we are going to roll that into. If someone gives us money, we'll, we'll be doing a larger study of, of this. But again, it's about stuff that happens with RRT along the way, along the lines that Sarah was saying. Do you want to start us off with some tubular secretion? Yeah, talking of trials, we should acknowledge, you know, one of the highlights of, of COVID has been the recovery trial done out of UK. You know, they have answered so many questions and most of those answers have been negative, right? Like hydroxychloroquine doesn't work. And, and the latest one, of course, is that convalescent plasma doesn't work. So again, the point that we have made earlier is that negative trials are not really negative. They answer a really useful question that like these are the things we can stop doing. One of the negative trials that I think has slipped under the radar, a small negative trial was done with cytosorb which is one of those fancy filters uh, so there's a german group which did the cytosorb trial and they found a that this does not remove more cytokines like they look at the il6 levels and in control versus cytosorb they're the same uh, so it's a waste of time but more importantly there was there were more deaths in the cytosorb right so it may be causing harm so these are among the, the many things that fda gave emergency use authorization for and it was probably not a good idea so more trials and recovery showed remdesivir didn't work. Is that right? No, no. Recovery did not do remdesivir. WHO did a remdesivir trial and they did not find a benefit. But, you know, they were, it, it was a very pragmatic trial. It wasn't as well done as the, the NIH uh, trial. But recovery did show that dexamethasone worked and it showed that tocilizumab right. worked as well. So, so they did have a couple of positive results. They're still doing the aspirin uh, trial. And, and there's another, I think, monoclonal or something they're doing. And, and am I right that most of the anticoagulation trials have not been positive so far? Uh, so, Is that so, right? so in, in critically ill, there was a platform like there are three different, like Remap and Active and and one more group, and they showed attack. I think they showed in critically ill it, there was no benefit with therapeutic anticoagulation, but in moderately ill, so not critically ill hospitalized patient, there was a benefit. Coagulation. Therapeutic anticoagulation. So it's kind uh, of interesting. Okay. So and there's some Bayesian analysis. So so they are all preprints now. I think there's going to be a lot of analysis uh, that happens when they come out because it's you have to get your head around. Like in the in those patients who are hospitalized with COVID who got heparin, they did not stop it if they went to the ICU afterwards. So, you know, there was still a benefit. But in those who were already in the ICU by the time you started that, then there was no benefit. So uh, I, I'm, I'm not a heparin expert by any means, but these results are going to be interesting to tease out. But anyway, it's fascinating the number of trials that have happened. Eventually, it took some time to get off, but it's, it's been you know eye-opener that trials can be done even in a pandemic, right? So we have no excuse not to do trials. Jay, you got a tubular secretion? Do I have a tubular secretion? Or you want me to go with that? Yeah, yeah. I, want you, I want you to put my kids through college. Let's talk about this thing. <laughs> oh my gosh, I think I wrote a chapter in that thing. Yes, you did on blood transfusions. I should at least name name the book so people who are yeah. listening know what you're talking about. It's called Handbook of Critical Care Nephrology, lead author, Jay Coiner. I believe it's J.L. Coiner. Thank you. It is J.L. Coiner. We all took middle, we all, we all invented middle names. Yes, I guess that, that could be my tubular secretion. Sure. I mean, we uh, put together a book leveraging the AKI critical care community at leveraging Joel and Edgar Lerner's past publishing prowess to be a first complete handbook of uh, uh, NEF critical care 
It's got all manner of topics in there. Their whole section is devoted to dialysis. Obviously, a Kiki 2 electric boogaloo is not in there, but all the other papers that we talked about are in there. Timing, dose, modality. We talk about PERT, but not HURT. Drugs. Talk about critical care topics like ARDS and things like VADs and ECMOs. We even talk about when you can say no and even a little bit on transplant. It's uh, modeled in part off of some of the pre-courses that are out there around nephrology, critical care, and many of the chapters are written by experts in the field. And a foreword written by the one and only Claudio Ronco. That is true, yes. That's right. It, it was... It was a monumental task bringing this together to land this ship. Jay was an unbelievable, dedicated editor and gathered a lot of authors. It was a really uh, an, imp- an impressive to watch him work. That's what made Edgar and I mostly were impressed with watching him work as we as we did nothing. I know that not to be the case. That was not the case. We all worked our asses off. It was, <laughs> a, total, it was a tremendous amount of work. And, and that book is available in mid-June, and it is a bargain at twice the price so go out and buy your <laughs> handbook of critical care nephrology. Yeah. $75 cheap. Amazon and Target. It's yeah, available Target at Target. People. I know. I'm super excited to be available at Target. <laughs> Nyan, do you got a, a tubular secretion? Yeah, sure. So I'm, I'm going to go completely non-medical here. My wife and I just finished watching uh, Ted Lasso. If you guys oh, haven't so seen good. this, so I, I think I'm late to the game. I think, you know, we're, we're late to the party here. It's a great show. If you haven't seen it, find somebody with Apple TV watch this show. The second season comes out, I think, July 23rd. Hopefully this podcast drops before that, but great show. (laughs) Sarah, do you have a tubular secretion? Yeah, I guess I'll say I just got a notice of award for an R01 two weeks ago, and we're looking at a... I don't know, I guess everyone who's doing research says that what they're doing is the most exciting thing they've ever done, but I feel like what we're doing right now is some of the most exciting stuff we've ever done. And I have to give a shout out to Sophie, who helped actually with a few of the ideas that ended up in this grant. And so we're looking at oxidative stress and some other factors in the heart in a mirroring model of acute kidney injury, acute kidney injury and we're pretty excited about it. Congratulations, both of you. That's outstanding. Great. Yeah, congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. Sophia, lay it on us. Oh, that's Sarah's grant. And maybe I've maybe participated in a little bit, but I do get to piggyback a little bit on this. She and I, or at least she invited me to work on something with her back in fellowship. And we just published it in AJP Lung, which I think is actually pretty cool because we're going to break into the lung world. Anyways, this is also looking at a murine model, and it's ischemic AKI, and it's looking at metabolomics in the lung, which is really, really cool. I think I was not a biochemistry person beforehand, and I literally had to start Googling these terms when she handed it to me. And she's like, hey, hey, Soph, do you think maybe you want to do this? And I was like, sure. I say yes to everything because I'm going to get it done. And then literally three years into my attending ship, I'm like poking my eye out, like, how are we going to get this thing published? This was a labor of love, and now it's a labor of hate. And then it's a labor of love again. And it's published, and it's really cool stuff. And basically, we found out that post-AKI at four hours, at least in mice, ATP is reduced. Tons of amino acids are actually compared to like a laparotomy comparison arm are low comparatively. And then we also know that there's other energy metabolites that are altered that suggest that basically the lung is working to potentially make more to augment 
oxidative phosphorylation or it's depleted. And then most importantly, oxidative stress is rather um, dramatically uh, impaired and glutathione is low. So I think it's really neat stuff. We got it in AJP Lung. I'm gonna do a dance about it. And I don't know if, if Sarah asked me to do another one, I don't know what my answer is gonna be. See now. <laughs> so glutathione, glutathione is low in AKI. Three, two, one. Hey, how about a mucomist study in AKI? That'd be interesting. <laughs> I kept my mouth shut. I was going to mention that, but... Oh my God, uh, can you imagine? <laughs> throw in some vitamin D, you got yourself an <laughs> That's right, we'll be funded for sure. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>